You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Being able to just um, sing praises to the Lord and gather together in prayer, it really is... uh, uh, brings us strength in these times, I would say. And uh, just don't forget that the joy of the Lord is our strength, and we must remember to be joyful in these times. And uh, perhaps when people look at us and, you know, they're, they're fearful and they're afraid of uh, what's to come and they don't know where to turn, they can look at us as a beacon of light, a beacon of joy, and they might question, hey, why are you so joyful in this time? where every, everything seems to be falling apart, everyone's afraid, what's different about you? And we can firmly point them to Christ, that it's not something in us. And I know it's popular today to have that belief that I'm my own God, I make my own life, and I can do everything, right? But then when calamities come, guess what? They're not praying to themselves. I'll tell you that much. The atheist is, oh, Lord, are, are you up there? Can you hear me? <laughs> Uh, so, anyway, it's a privilege to be worshiping and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. I'd like to welcome you to the second installment of our series, which is the good news. And I know it's been a while, but the last time we were here, uh, Pastor Ovi did a great job on um, the beginning of the series, which was First, we have to know the bad news before the good news. How does that sound? Who likes to hear bad news? <laughs> and what the main idea was found in Isaiah 64, 6. And I'll just quickly read it so we can kind of connect what we did two weeks ago to where we're headed now. And the idea, um, Isaiah 64, 6, but we are like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We fade as a leaf, and all our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. How does that sound to you? How would you like to open up a Hallmark card and hear and read that your good works are as filthy rags? I think uh, it would not be a bestseller, that's for sure. And it's kind of interesting, too, if you think about it, because I think if, from a worldly perspective, if someone said, our bad works were as filthy rags. Maybe some could agree with that. They'd be like, okay, it seems a little harsh, our bad works, uh, you know, because we're human beings. And kind of changing the lingo, it's no longer, sin seems kind of negative. We should change it to mistakes. We're human beings. We're fallible, right? God will overlook our shortcomings. They're not really sins. They're just shortcomings. Everyone does them. So, of course, Since we're all on the same page, God will welcome everybody into heaven, right? And that's that's the worldly philosophy. Um, Not much has changed. Honestly, 2,000 years ago in Israel, people thought the same thing. They thought God was not really that serious about sin. And because they were Jewish, they came from Abraham. All Jews go to heaven. You don't really have to do much. You're just going to come in. In fact, one of the folklore of that time was that Abraham was standing at at the gates, and if a Jew so happened to wander into the bad side of Sheol, of the grave, 
Abraham would, you know, correct them and say, hey, buddy, you're going the wrong way. You're a Jew. Come into the house of the Lord, right? Many people might still believe that. So what about you this morning? Are you trusting in your own righteousness, like the filthy rags? Would you be proud to bring your used toilet paper before a human king? How much more should we shudder at the thought of proclaiming our righteousness before a God whose eyes are a flame of fire and searches the thoughts and the intents of the heart? Uh, that's definitely a scary thought, if you ask me. Uh, consider the other phrase in verse 6, we fade as a leaf. This reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what Adam and Eve used to cover up the shame of their nakedness before God? Uh, they used uh, fig leaves, if you guys remember, which uh, represents man's achievement, the best that man can bring, man's religion, man trying to make himself right with God. And it fades. That's the reality. It fades as a leaf. Fig leaves are not sufficient covering because over time they just shrivel up, they fall off, and leaves just crumble. And because it's not a sufficient covering, God fashioned for them clothes made from animal skins. Did you catch that? God himself showed humanity from the very beginning that the only way to approach him is through a covering that he provides by a sacrifice. This should get you thinking, if my righteousness is like filthy rags and like a leaf, what will be the covering God provides? Imagine asking that question and not having a response for thousands of years. Imagine the hopelessness you would feel. Well, if you recall, our last series was in Malachi. We went verse by verse through the book of Malachi. And this prophet, at this time, where we're going to be examining um, the New Testament, uh, in Malachi, this prophet went off the air 400 years ago. And it seems like God has forgotten about his people, and perhaps hopelessness has crept in. As the Old Testament ends with a curse, the New Testament opens in our text for today, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is an appropriate time for cheers and applause. Finally, the long-awaited question will be answered, a glimmer of hope. Now, before we begin uh, the reading of our text this morning, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. And I was really moved by the prayer segment we had. And, you know, prayer goes hand in hand with the word. Imagine if you didn't know anything about the Bible, erase everything you know about the Bible, and try to go before God that you don't know and try to pray to him. How would that prayer look like? It would be short. It would be kind of strange. You wouldn't know what to say. You'd feel kind of awkward. Is God even listening to me? But with growing in the depth of his word, our prayers can grow as well because we understand his heart through his word that he's revealed to us so our prayers can grow. And by growing in prayer, we can begin to have the energy to grow in his word. And as we grow in his word, we can begin to grow in prayer. And it's like it just keeps going and building. So if you would bow your heads where you are. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with thankfulness. We are so thankful that you have revealed to us your truth, for without your revelation, we wouldn't know anything. We can rest upon the work that you have accomplished for us at the cross. And this morning, we invite you to stir our minds and hearts for your word. Father, in this Christmas season, I pray that you would place upon us a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
I pray for an urgency to share the good news with our lost friends, neighbors, and strangers. I pray that we would understand that we are needy and beggarly when it comes to righteousness, yet you have provided all for us. Thank you for who you are and the fact that we are so blessed to know the living and true God. I pray you would use this word for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. Well, today we are entering into the New Testament with a proclamation from a strange character in the wilderness. But just to kind of give it away, we're going to be starting in Mark 1.1. This is the segment where, remember, we're kind of focusing on the first sermon was the bad news before the good news. Now it's the good news. And it's actually a little bit before the good news, the proclamation of the one who's coming. And that's who Malachi pointed to. And we'll be focusing on, in Mark, uh, chapter 1, uh, 1 through 8. But before we go to that, we have to ask a few questions first. Um, before you start any book, it's important to kind of ask yourself a few questions like, when was it written? Who's the audience? What, are the, what is the theme? Um, so a couple of those questions. The gospel, according to Mark, was written by the apostle Peter, but... but penned by John Mark. The book of Mark was written primarily to the Roman reader, and kind of the evidence that it was written to the Roman reader was that there's not much genealogy there. So the Jews are very concerned with prophecy and genealogy. They're really interested. They can go to the temple and look up their genealogy, while the Roman reader doesn't really care about that. They're not going to, you know, be terribly concerned with the Old Testament that they're not that familiar with. Um, the book presents Jesus as a servant and focuses on his qualifications and miracles. The point is that Jesus is qualified. He is the Messiah. I'd also like to broaden the picture by making it more complete, and for that I'll read the same passage from Matthew. Matthew is written primarily to the Jews. There is a great emphasis on prophecy and genealogy. It's the first gospel that was written uh, before any of the other gospel accounts. And it's written, or one of the themes, is to present Jesus as the king. Now, let's begin with Mark 1, 1 through 8. And I apologize. Um, as I kind of was writing the sermon, I realized that I had to go to Luke. And so you'll get a small segment from Luke. And it's maybe more detailed than you need, but here it goes. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before, before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins." Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he, preaching, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. For now, I'll stop here and make a few general observations. Um, just about the first verse, really. 
Notice how the first verse gives us a declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ. So gospel means good news. Um, and Brother Chris was here yesterday for the, uh, the word, and um, basically the Greek is evangelion. is where we get the word gospel. Um, just a side note here, and I know it kind of seems silly, but uh, everyone knows that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? We, we, we know it's not Jesus Christ. as Christ is actually a title. It means Messiah or anointed one, so just for clarification. Um, also, Jesus is immediately identified not as another prophet, but as deity, the Son of God. The first verse can be summarized as the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At this point, if anyone is curious and turn over to Matthew 3, you'll find that it starts a little differently with a few more details added. And it's interesting how Mark adds two prophetic passages, and Matthew only has one, but we'll kind of get to that, find out why he did that. Um, and it might seem like you're drinking from a fire hose at this point, but bear with me for a little bit more reading. And um, kind of as I'm reading, just kind of think about what I'm, what's happening here and how uh, the account from Mark is a little bit different from Matthew and how we can get a broader understanding by connecting the two, okay? So, here it goes. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, just as a side note, how would you like to have that as your Hallmark card? Uh, not good. Uh, or imagine if I would have started off this sermon by saying, Welcome, Brood of Vipers, to Summit Church. Uh, I don't think we should be saying this. Nevertheless, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. At this point, we can start to move between the Gospels and really understand what's going on and Perhaps, I, I hope you can appreciate the extra detail given from Matthew. Notice how Mark and Matthew use prophecies to introduce this strange man known as John the Baptizer, or if you're from the South, anyone here from the South, by the way? Okay. Uh, John the Southern Baptist. <laughs> yes, I've been waiting to use that dad joke for a while. It's not that funny, but there's plenty more where that came from. John was actually foretold hundreds of years ago, before his birth, 
and both writers use the same prophecies to introduce him. In Mark, the first prophecy is Malachi 3.1, which is absent from the Matthew account. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Notice here he says, oh, sorry, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Behold, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, why do you think Mark inserted this passage from Malachi while Matthew did not? Well, since Mark was written to the Roman audience, they would have understood that a king always sends a forerunner to announce his arrival. They would usually start a huge parade, stir up a crowd, and get people excited to see who's coming to town. In like manner, Mark is pointing out that God is sending his messenger in the form of John the Baptist, who is now being revealed, to announce the arrival of himself. So God is sending John the Baptist to reveal that he is coming. Notice Malachi says, and he will prepare the way before me. This detail further supports that the one who is coming is no ordinary man, but the God-man, Christ Jesus. Next is the quotation that both Gospels use from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John, we know that this John was the voice sent to Israel, calling out to her from the wilderness. And it's kind of interesting, if you take a survey of the scripture and you find out that God often uses his prophets and his people, his men, um, and he takes them to the wilderness. If you recall, he took the children of Israel to the wilderness. He called Moses out of the wilderness. Paul the Apostle spent three years in the Arabian desert. Um, Jesus himself went to the wilderness as well to be alone with God. And we see that time and time again. And at this point in history, God is calling out to Israel once again in the wilderness. So let's focus on making the path straight. What does that mean? A smooth way in the desert, a highway for God. Rough ground would become easy to walk on. Rugged terrain would become like a broad valley and the glory of God would be revealed, seen by all flesh. Once again, we know the voice refers to John's voice, but what are the various metaphors? So let's take a look at the metaphors Isaiah uses to describe his work. First, Isaiah says John clears a way for the Lord in the wilderness. The way refers to a way into the hearts of the people of Israel. John was announcing Jesus' arrival for probably six months before Jesus arrived. In doing so, John was preparing their hearts to accept Jesus once John announced him. In the same way, Isaiah says that the terrain of Israel would become easier to walk through. And we know that there was no geographical changes to Israel, um, to the countryside, when Jesus appeared. So here again, these are metaphors describing the hearts and attitudes of the Jewish people. Israel's disinterest in their sinfulness and their hard-heartedness toward God are compared to rough terrain or high mountains that couldn't be crossed easily. But because of the work of John the Baptist, hearts were awakened, attitudes softened, 
and repentance had taken hold, like a rough ground plowed and flattened to make for an easy walk. We've mentioned this John the Baptist character, but now I'd like to add a few details about this man. So this is the portion where I'd like to talk about the background, who he was, kind of the scripture gives us a lot of details. We know that um, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were cousins. At the sixth month of Mary's con- uh, Elizabeth's conception, um, John, uh, sorry, Elizabeth and Mary both knew that they were bearing special sons. Uh, in fact, when Mary saw Elizabeth for the first time, uh, it is said that John leapt in the mother's womb at six months, which is also countercultural because many people think that um, a woman, uh, that it's just a fetus, right? That it's not a human life. But the Bible clearly says that there was life in this baby. So both mothers knew they were bearing special sons. It was revealed to them. Men who would serve God in significant ways. John was born about six months before Jesus. So we can assume that John and Jesus, perhaps they played together as kids, at least occasionally. But we also know that at some point their lives diverged. And this is the point where their lives diverged and eventually they come back together. John and Jesus lived in separate parts of the country and their families had very different ways of life. Jesus' earthly father was a manual laborer in Galilee, while John's father was a priest serving in the high, uh, serving in the, in the temple in Jerusalem twice a year. So the two sons likely saw less and less of each other as they grew older. More importantly, John did not grow up knowing that his cousin Jesus was the future Messiah. In fact, no one outside of Mary and Joseph knew the full story about Jesus. After Joseph was gone, only Mary would have known the truth. So Jesus grew up in obscurity, as did John. So fast forward a little bit. As time progressed, Jesus is now 30 years old, according to the Gospel of John. And Matthew says, In those days, John began preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Judea is Judah's tribal territory of southern Israel, that extends from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the Jordan River in the east, and from just north of Jerusalem to the Negev Desert in the south. There should be a map. Hopefully that's a little bit easier with the geography. Um, In the middle of Judah, there is a mountain range that runs north and south. The prevailing winds blow from west off the Mediterranean Sea, bringing moisture to Israel. As those winds collide with the mountains, the air cools and releases its moisture on the western foothills. Then the air, pressure, the air passes over the mountains as hot, dry wind, creating a vast desert wasteland on the leeward side of the mountain down the Jordan River. That desert is called the Judean Wilderness. At some point during his 20s, John left his home and retreated into this harsh desert region. John spent most of his time in the lower Jordan, River Valley, north of the Dead Sea, and northeast of Jerusalem. He survives off the land, as Matthew tells us in verse 4, dressed as a prophet in mourning, which is the camel skins, uh, having um, minimal contact with people, 
And having a leather belt around him, he ate locusts and wild honey. Being in the wilderness, he was probably a skinny but muscular-looking man with honey and perhaps pieces of locusts stuck to his beard. Yeah, kind of gross, huh? <laughs> Despite his outward appearance, it is said that everyone was coming out to him from Jerusalem and Judea. And it's interesting, if you're worried about how you look, if God could use the guy covered with honey and locusts in his beard, you have nothing to worry about, trust me. The next natural question is, what was John's message? And this is where it gets, I'm kind of going to let you know where this is going. So now that you kind of have a background of who John was, he's announcing the Messiah, we're going to get a little bit into the message, and we kind of have the geography down. And I'll let you know, it's kind of a three-parter. The idea is first repent and a reason for repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's the motivation and then the action of baptism. So we'll begin to kind of focus on these ideas as we progress and we'll get a, you know, this will be a great opportunity to correct some errors to kind of explore what is repentance, what is baptism, how does it correlate with us, okay? as believers in in our day. Excuse me. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first part of John's message, his call to action was a single powerful word, repent. Repent or repentance is a word Christians hear often, but it's not well understood. It doesn't mean to feel sorry or to have regret having done something wrong. And I know a few years ago, many years ago, that was the idea to kind of have preachers to be really emotional and get people to start crying, and then that would be the fruit of repentance, right? But actually, the Greek word is metanoia, or as Pastor Ovi says, metanoeo. Um, Meta is where we get, uh, is change, where we get our word uh, metamorphosis, and noia is mind. It literally means a change or a turn in our thinking. You can say to repent is to change your mind. A common belief in that day was that all Jews, like I mentioned, go to paradise. But John was saying that their sin and hard-heartedness put them in jeopardy in front of a holy God who was coming into his kingdom, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was encouraging them in doing works worthy of repentance And, in fact, a few details. Luke chapter 3, this is not a new concept as well, but the people, John began to proclaim to do uh, works worthy of repentance, and the works are actually outlined in the law. It's kind of like restitution, where you've wronged somebody, and now you're making a move to correct them, where in the law it says if you steal one sheep, you pay back your neighbor tenfold, right? It's the same idea. Um, so the people asked him, this is uh, Luke three ten. it's not in the PowerPoint, but so the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and say, said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. And I'll just stop there. This idea that these people have been living their life in a way that was 
selfish, sinful, now they're turning and they're doing the opposite. They've changed their mind and because of the mind change, they're doing the opposite. And this is like basically the evidence that I have repented. So it's not like I have repented, I've changed my mind, but I've done nothing and I keep going in my way. But the evidence is that now I'm walking a different way. I'm doing things differently. So, where at one point, um, the people of Israel did not think about their sin, now they're greatly concerned over sin. Even more, they are deeply troubled by what God thinks of their sin. And so, they have directed their attention toward Him. Knowing that we have offended God, we should be concerned for what will become of us at the moment we face Him for judgment. While the concept of repentance was not new to Israel, John was applying it in a powerful new way. John was calling God's people to get right with God because despite the Jews' external piety, and it was huge, they, they would uh, dress a certain way, they had a competition with tassels. So if you're familiar with the Jewish law, uh, the men were supposed to have tassels on their um, garments. And to stand out, the leader that had the longest tassels was the holiest. So these, were, these guys were just doing external rules, right, to show how good they are before God, but it was in vain. So John calls Israel to collectively change their minds about their comfortable coexistence with sin and to turn their thoughts towards considering how God might judge them. So now that we kind of have a basis for understanding what repentance is and what John was telling the people of Israel, now we can kind of start to question ourselves. How do we fit into repentance? How does that work? What about repentance in the Christian life? And I mean to get a little theological at this point and address the church in regards of repentance of sin and repentance unto God for salvation. This is somewhat of a touchy subject, and I'll tread carefully, but I simply ask you to, to be Bereans and to search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is true. I'll start off by saying some Christians believe that in order to be saved, so we're talking about salvation, um, we must uh, repent of all our sins before we come to Christ. Has anyone heard that before? You have to repent of all your sins before you come to Christ? Does that kind of sound familiar? A repent of your sins in this context refers to a 180 degree turn from your sin. It's kind of like this, right? If this were true, then you are saying that before you get saved, um, you must do the work of the Holy Spirit, which is sanctification, before you are indwelt by the Spirit. Hmm. Furthermore, I have never met a Christian that has fully turned from all their sins. Have you? I, I still am waiting for that. If repenting from all your sins is needed for salvation, then who could be saved? Furthermore, Christianity becomes another works-based religion, like all the others, and grace has become void. And remember, grace is unmerited favor. If there's something you can do for this grace, then it's no longer grace. It's kind of like, to illustrate it, um, imagine I'm a king, right? And I'm a good king, I'm a kind king, and to display my kindness, I give Pastor Ovi a brand new Lamborghini, right? And Pastor Ovi is so thankful. He pulls out 10 cents and he says, here you go. I would be insulted. I would say, 
what? Like, this gift that I've given him now becomes void. Now he's purchased it, and it's no longer displaying my goodness. Now it just becomes a transaction. And oftentimes with religion and man's works, man tends to think that they can keep rules or laws or certain things, look externally pious and dress a certain way or eat certain foods, and God will reward them for that, right? And this, this can't be further from the truth. In the proper context of the Christian experience, repentance is a condition necessary for salvation. Wait a minute, Flo. First you said it wasn't. Now you're saying it is. Now, let me expand on this. Repentance onto salvation. So remember, repentance is just a standard word. I know it has a religious connotation when you think of repent. You don't hear that on the nightly news, right? You'd be like, whoa, this lady's preaching uh, all of a sudden. But repentance just means to change your mind. So there's a repentance from sin, right? Turning from sin. But there's also repentance unto God for salvation. And that's what is necessary for salvation. And it occurs when someone changes their mind towards God. So the positive declaration is believe. For example, if I didn't believe anything, all I would have to do is believe the gospel. But say I was coming from a background, a Muslim background, a Hindu background. At that point, it's no longer believe, it's repent. Because I have to change what I think about you know, Vishnu or Buddha or Muhammad. I have to actually change and direct my repentance towards God. I have to change my mind towards God, if that makes sense. Have you changed your mind about what you believe and now you are believing what God has said? Practically speaking, what can someone repent from to be saved? It seems like there are two things hindering human beings from being saved. And kind of went over this, but they are either looking internally and trusting in their own mind, heart, or goodness, or they are looking externally to something they must do or keep to make themselves presentable towards God. The Bible tells mankind to change our minds from ourselves, our righteousness, our rules, and to look unto Him, turn unto Him and be saved. The Pharisees were really good at making rules and trusting in their own works to earn them everlasting life. We read this in Hebrews 6.1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and, and of faith toward God. The context of this verse is in uh, chapter 6 of Hebrews, is progressing towards maturity and leaving the basic principles of changing our mind, repentance, from dead works unto faith towards God. What are these dead works? Well, keeping laws, observing days, self-flagellation, many more. I'm sure you can think of it. You see, humanity is faced with a choice. Will they trust in their dead works or will they turn or change their mind to the faith that is in Christ Jesus? Where is your trust this morning? Once, I, once again, I'm speaking of repentance unto salvation. What about repentance of sin in the Christian life after we are saved? The Holy Spirit will use the Word of God to cleanse us from our sin. And that is true. This is a promise in a believer's life. The only way 
This will not happen is if the believer once coming to faith in Christ ignores or disregards the Bible. You see, the Word of God is referred to as many things, including a sword um, that pierces. It's a form of offense. And even water. In its proper use, it's the blood of Christ that saves us and washes away our sins. While the Word of God acting as water cleanses us and perpetually washes over us in the renewing of our minds, if you remember. Therefore, a faithful servant to Christ will perpetually turn from sin and be cleansed by the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit by the Scripture. Now, what if that believer is unfaithful to the Word to be cleansed? So this is a believer that has come to Christ. They believe the gospel. I mean, when you believe, it's either believe or you don't. There's no stages to belief. If I, it's all or nothing proposition. And uh, faith is something that comes in degrees while belief is either all or none, if that makes sense. Now, what if they are unfaithful? Can they go on sinning? Well, certainly not. When we become new creatures, our Father has the right and promises to discipline us. And that should be a fearful thing. In fact, he has the right to kill us if we live in willful disobedience. Uh, I said kill us. So, There is an example of such willful disobedience in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. An example, and I'm not going to pull it up, but it's basically an example of a believer sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul's judgment, he's writing to the church at Corinth, um, he tells them to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his body, but his spirit will be saved. Now, let us be better than this and progress in our faith towards God, not trying to avoid sin because um, God will discipline us, although that is a motivation to turn from sin, certainly, but rather let us let our love for, um, for our Father and fear of disappointing Him drive us to repent from sin daily. It's kind of like you want to make your father proud, and why not? I mean, he's given everything for us. What a, what a privilege. Last question about um, repentance. What is the engine? What do you think drives repentance? And I mean repentance unto salvation or changing your mind towards God. I'll give you two options. The fear of the Lord leads to repentance or the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. What do you guys think? Kindness? Okay, good. Jessica. All right. Although the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the truth is the kindness of God leads us to repentance as we read in Romans 2.4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So as long as a non-believer views God as being evil or unkind, they will never repent unto God. They will not want to turn unto a God that they believe is evil and unkind. And if you're like me, you've had many conversations with non-believers that have in their mind a very negative outlook on God. They come to the conclusion that God is evil for allowing evil in this world. Right? Oh, okay, wow. I don't know what to say. Their argument is an emotional argument, often stating, if God is good, then why is there evil, suffering, disease, and death in this world? And I'll illustrate this logic by comparison. Imagine you received a brand new Honda Civic, right? Anyone's first car? 
Now, you drive this car, it's your baby. One day you get into a terrible car accident and you conclude there is no maker of this car. Ah, or the maker of this car must be evil. Is that a fair assessment? Of course, it's absurd to blame the maker of your car for, for your accident or deny his existence. When we repent towards God, we begin to look at the world through his word and we conclude that there is something wrong with creation. But death, disease, suffering, natural disasters, injustice are consequences of the fall. Yet in his kindness and mercy, he has provided redemption for all that would repent and believe the gospel. In order to do that, we must turn away or change our minds from what we think to what God has said. And I'll leave you with this section of repentance with the final verse found in Acts 20, 21, where Paul is preaching and is said, testifying both to Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, turning towards God forsaking your beliefs about crystals and karma and whatever, the universe being God, and turning towards the Creator and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, we will shift our attention to what exactly John was doing in the wilderness. Um, in essence, preaching repentance unto the remission of sin because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it caused people to receive baptism. And so uh, this portion, basically it's the motivation. So we looked at what was repentance, what it means, what it means in our lives, what John was preaching in the wilderness. And now what is the motivation for repentance? And the motivation is the kingdom is at, is at hand. And the Old Testament prophets told Israel that the Lord would one day set up a kingdom on earth. This kingdom would rule the entire earth and all the nations would be under the authority of the king of this kingdom. The kingdom would be centered in Israel and the Jewish people would be the chief nation among all nations and the Jewish Messiah would be the ruler of this kingdom. The Lord promised this kingdom at various parts of the Old Testament, including in his covenants to the patriarchs, to David and Solomon. Uh, for centuries, the Jewish people had heard this promise and the prophets reminding them it was coming. And remember, it was 400 years. That was the last time God even spoke to Israel and hasn't spoken a word about the kingdom. Now we find ourselves under Roman rule, oppressed. So for many within Israel, the promise of a coming messianic kingdom seemed more and more unlikely. Many had stopped expecting it, and even fewer were prepared for it. But now a new prophet had emerged in the wilderness, a man declaring once again the kingdom of heaven was coming. More than that, this prophet was saying the kingdom of heaven is actually at hand. When we say is at hand, we mean it's on the verge of appearing. It's imminent. Like when we see a woman um, at the end of her ninth, ninth month of pregnancy, we might say the birth of her child is at hand. This is this was intended to be motivation for these people to heed John's call to repent. Um, the prophets foretold the arrival of the kingdom. We see this clearly in the book of Daniel. And I will read the passage. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will, will arise 
and there will be a time of great distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel was told at the end of the age, following a time of great distress on the earth, the kingdom would appear and God's elect would be rescued and there'd be a judgment with some people being included in the kingdom while other people being excluded. Um, so when the prophet declared that this kingdom was about to appear, Israel had good reason to care. They felt the same way employees feel when they hear the boss is going to be walking by their desk or when they hear a teacher is about to announce a pop quiz. They felt motivated to clean up their act to prepare for the test. In other words, John's announcement gave Israel the motivation they needed to heed his call to repentance. They, they knew that if they continued in their present ways, they wouldn't be ready for God's arrival. They would miss the kingdom because their life of sin and disregard for God would bar them as the prophets foretold. So we learn about repentance, the kingdom, and just a little bit more. If you guys are familiar uh, with Daniel chapter 3 with um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if that sounds familiar, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue. And in this dream, in this vision, um, through the king Nebuchadnezzar, God gives the, his timetable to the whole world. And he basically says that as time progresses, this time called the age of the Gentiles, which Jesus uh, quotes Daniel, the age of the Gentiles, will diminish, the kingdoms will of the earth will diminish in value and in, um, uh, in value, and there was one other thing I can't remember, but anyway, it starts off with the head of gold, uh, chest of silver, uh, thighs of bronze, uh, lower legs of iron, and then feet, iron, and clay. So as world history progresses, this is what you'll see. The kingdoms will diminish in value, and at the very end of this time period, a rock cut out without hands comes from heaven and smashes the statue, which is the human kingdoms. And this statue just is pulverized. And from this rock, it grows into a mountain, and it encompasses the whole earth. So that's something that the people of Israel were familiar with. And this is the third part. The third part of his message, a promise of forgiveness of sins. And I'll just read a few passages from Luke. And he came into all, uh, Luke 3, 3, and he came into all the districts around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The third most important part of John's message, the gospel, that the Messiah was about to arrive for his people, the Messiah would be greater than John or any other prophet because he will offer his people forgiveness of their sins. He would also have the power to judge so that those who do not receive him would come under his condemnation. So John was offering Israel the solution 
to their sin the same solution God had offered through the earlier prophets, a Messiah, a Savior who would come to save Israel from their sins, um, that all who place their trust in him will not be disappointed. That the Lord is willing to extend mercy to us through the Messiah for anyone who would accept him as Lord. In a nutshell, that's what the baptism of John meant for those who took part in it. When they accepted John's baptism, they were accepting the message, they were repenting, right? They were turning from their sinful lives to prepare their hearts to meet God. They were anticipating the arrival of the kingdom promised to Israel because they wanted to be included in it. And they were acknowledging their need for forgiveness of sins. And so they placed their faith in the promise of Messiah. Remember the word baptism comes from the Greek word to dip. And this interesting idea of confessing their sins. Um, we, we see it in all the accounts that they were confessing their sins. Well, what is it about this confession of sin? Well, the idea is oftentimes human beings wear masks, right? We put our religious mask on and we go to church we smile, everything is okay, hey, how you doing, hi, bye, you go home, and you don't tell anyone anything, and you, maybe some people could be hypocritical. When you confess your sins, you are essentially taking off that mask, and you are coming before God as you are, as he sees you, and you are acknowledging and agreeing with God that, yes, I am in need. That's the idea behind confessing your sins, and that's what the people were doing. They were actually humbling themselves. Instead of sticking behind their mask and holding it up and saying, oh, I'm really good, which the Pharisees, called the brood of vipers, um, were sticking behind their religion, while other people, to acknowledge their need, would say, listen, I confess my sins, and I, I'm in need of forgiveness and even baptism. So going back to the Greek word to dip, it refers to the way the cloth was dyed by dipping it into a bowl of liquid. When the cloth was pulled up out of the liquid, it had taken the color of the liquid. It had been baptized. In the same sense, anyone who, was, who submitted to baptism of John was accepting John's teaching concerning the Messiah. And therefore, they were committing themselves to follow whoever John named as the Messiah and uh, John assured his followers that the Messiah would soon appear. We learn in chapter 1 of John's gospel that John himself was waiting to learn the identity of the Messiah too. And then when John learned that Jesus was the Messiah, he directed those he had baptized to leave him and follow Jesus. So we're reaching... Um, the next question is, what about baptism in the Christian life? Is it the same as John's baptism? Is it a little bit different? Is baptism a requirement for salvation? The primary text used to argue for salvation through baptism is found in Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What we must keep in mind so that we, don't, we do not go into error, is that baptism is not a new concept and Acts is a transitionary book. When we investigate baptism throughout the Bible, we find that the first bapti baptism was actually, uh, does anyone know actually? Moses. 
Moses was actually, Paul identifies that Moses was actually the first baptism. So baptism was not a new thing. Exodus 14, 22 tells of when God parted the Red Sea and made the Israelites to pass through. Furthermore, Paul comments on their, on their passage through the Red Sea and likens it to a baptism. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 2, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Hmm. In essence, baptism can be boiled down to a few things. Baptism has a baptizer, a baptizee, and the element. The baptizer is Moses, who the people identify with, and there is this strong connection that whoever the baptizer is, you identify with that person. There is an ident uh, identification going on. Um, the baptizee is the children of Israel, and the element is the water above and uh, the sea. They basically pass through the sea. There's water above and below, and they pass through it. Now, they all passed through this baptism, but God was only pleased with the ones that had faith while the unbelievers were killed in the wilderness. And it said, because they believed God, uh, God was pleased. But when the, the children of Israel came uh, through that passing, the unbelievers were actually killed off. Furthermore, in John's time, there was ceremonial washing and even baptism, but it was largely used to wash proselytes. So this is the other idea that baptism was not a new thing. In fact, in Israel, they would often, a, a proselyte is basically someone like a Gentile that comes and identifies with the Jewish people and their laws and their ceremony, uh, and they want to become part of the Jews. And what they would do to that Gentile was they would take that Gentile and baptize him because they would see him as spiritually dirty. Now, this was also given as a picture um, that God would give to show our need for a spiritual cleansing, as it were, so that the physical would symbolize something spiritual. And God often communicates that way to us. Now, imagine being a Jew at that time and submitting under this baptism, a proselyte baptism. So you're basically identifying with the Gentiles who the Jews would often refer to as dogs. So it's a very humbling experience to be baptized as a Gentile. That's the ultimate humility at that time to say, okay, I'm going to submit to this because I am in such need and I believe the message. Now, let's talk about that transition. So I, I talked about that uh, baptism is not a new concept and that we see that Acts is a transitionary book. Uh, where in Acts 2.38, in which Peter commands his Jewish brethren to be baptized... And what Paul preached is a little bit different. It transitioned. Let me give you some context. Remember when Pentecost first occurred, only Jews were among those that believed Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. In fact, it isn't until Acts 10 that the first Gentile, Cornelius, comes to faith in Jesus. The response from the early church, what do you think? The church was like happy and said, yay, we get to have Gentiles. No, it was one of shock and rejection at first, but they concluded that God is allowing grace towards Gentiles. As time moves on and Paul begins his apostleship, we see that he tells the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.30, 
And just to give you some context, this is a portion where Paul is locked in prison and he begins to sing with his companion and God actually shakes the prison. All the doors are opened and instead of fleeing for their lives, all the prisoners remain. And at that time, a jailer is responsible for these prisoners. If these prisoners escape, his life is over. So his life is in peril and this jailer that was perhaps persecuting these Christians, now about to take his life, Paul comes out and says, we're all here. You're going to live, buddy. You don't have to kill yourself. We're all here. And that jailer, so moved with compassion, said, um, and I'll, I'll just read it. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Notice how the message transitioned to belief. In short, it's believing in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that saves you. Not repentance, not works, not baptism. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. What about Peter? And we talk about Peter. Um, would Peter disagree with Paul? And remember, when we're in the context of a transition. Did Peter stick to what he said in Acts 2.38 or was there a, truly a transition? What does Peter have to say in the conclusion? Notice what he says in 1 Peter 3.21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is actually on the same page as Paul he even states that it's not water passing over someone's physical body and cleaning it that saves them, but it's what it represents and what had happened to them when they had come to faith. In essence, it is a spiritual baptism that occurs in a person when they first believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that we have some background, let me clarify and see if we can put this in order that we might correct some error. A person starts out as what the Bible calls an unbeliever, dead in trespasses and sin. Does that sound familiar? When that person hears the gospel, they have the opportunity to believe. When they believe, the Holy Spirit regenerates that sinful unbeliever and grants them a new spirit with new desires. The Bible is clear that Jesus Christ himself baptizes all believers into a new body. As we read in our text, Mark 1.8, John speaking, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a spiritual baptism that saves as we identify with Christ and we are part of his body as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink of one spirit, the thread that binds believers from all continents, all time, all history and cultures is that we are in the body of Christ, a called out body. In Greek, it's called an ecclesia. That's the church with various members and ministries. As we progress in our walk with Christ, we grow in faith by reading and memorizing his word. The evidence of our faith is obedience to his word. We repent of sins and crucify the flesh daily, dying to our selfish and sinful desires. 
we begin to walk after the Spirit and obey Christ by submitting to water baptism. And if you have not been water baptized, you owe Christ a water baptism. In water baptism, we identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. This is a, dis- a public display um, and profession of faith you have in what he has accomplished for you on the cross. All I can say is what a profound privilege to identify with Christ. And guys, I know it's been long. It's been a long and fun journey, but we're approaching the end. I would also like to give you a little bit of insight from Romans, speaking of how our baptism symbolizes what happened in the Spirit and how God communicates um, what happened in our spirit through a physical act. Uh, Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. And Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So this is an identification. Just as Christ died, was buried, and rose again, it's the same symbolism that happens in a believer. That happened before in the spirits. Now it's being shown publicly something physical to identify what happened in the spirit. Now, just a recap. As a reminder, we've looked at the prophecies that announced the coming of the messenger, John the baptizer, a look at the message of repentance from sin, a theological look at repentance unto God, unto salvation. We talked about the kingdom of heaven being near and briefly examined what John was doing, which is baptizing. Lastly, we learned about the history and theology of baptism. And guys, I just scratched the surface. There is so much more that you can go into and study about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And I mean, it's inexhaustible. There's one thing I left out. Remember the question I asked at the very beginning? I asked a lot of questions, but what is the covering God will give that may cover the shame of our nakedness before him? How can we obtain righteousness? The answer, my friend, can be found on the cross, the good news of salvation. And that's the good news. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When we believe in Jesus, we are given an alien righteousness, forgiveness of our sins, and peace with God. I know it's been a while since our last Sunday service, but if you recall our first challenge, so now we get into the application portion and challenge, our first challenge was to pray for our lost friends and family members. And back there we have a tree with some stars, and we've been writing names of friends and family members that we can pray for for their actual salvation. This week, I'd like to challenge you to invite or even drag your unbelieving friend or family member to church. Let's get them in hearing distance of the gospel that they may be baptized into the body of Christ. Amen? 
That's the mission of the church. And if any here have doubts about the goodness of God after we have come to faith, let me remind you how powerful God is to keep us. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The good news just keeps getting better as God seals us with the Holy Spirit when we come to faith. Uh, Now, I kind of challenge a believer. If I were to tell you or any of you that truly have believed, stop believing in Jesus, could you do it? I tried to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. I, I, for five years, I tried to suppress the truth, but there was a nagging, uh, something I could not get away from that told me I was going to die, I was in peril, and I was going to stand before God. And that drove me back to God in repentance. So repenting unto God, it's something that I cannot unbelieve at this point. Kind of like Since there was a change in us, it's kind of like taking a butterfly and trying to put it back into a caterpillar, trying to stick it in the cocoon and make it a caterpillar again. It just, it won't work that way anymore. You're a new creature once you've trusted in the blood of Christ. And it's a good thing, but it's also a scary thing. Once again, God, as our Father, has the right to discipline us. And uh, overall, he's the one who keeps us. He sealed us. And not only that, but it's a uh, guarantee of the purchased possession. It's kind of like putting a down payment on a home. When someone puts a down payment on a home, they're saying that they are so earnest, they are, they are willing to put down something to show that they are, are going to buy this house. And likewise, God has placed in us a possession, his spirit in us, saying that he will be faithful to complete the work that he has started in us. Amen? So with that being said, and remembering to bring our friends next week, that's the challenge. I'll just uh, end us off in a closing prayer. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.